All right, welcome. Hold on, I'm waiting for my confirmation. There it is. Welcome to the Friday Q&A. I am uh, Pastor Mike Winger. I'm here to try to answer your questions about the Bible, about Christianity, the Christian faith. Um, easy questions, hard questions, hopefully. I mean, I think the hard questions are the ones we often learn the most from. And our first question from today, coming uh, from, and let me read it to you guys, from Debbie Eekman. She asked the following question about following your heart. She says, follow your heart is a popular mantra, but it's not encouraged in some Christian circles. I understand that Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. But Proverbs 4.23 says, the springs of life flow from our hearts. Also, since God's word is written on our heart, Jeremiah 31.33, shouldn't we follow our hearts? Okay, I, I find this to be actually a really... Uh, substantially more interesting question than usually what people say when they go, Should I, shouldn't I follow my heart? Because this is trying to base it in, in scripture and in theology. And there's a significant thing here you're asking about, like the in the new covenant, am I not given God's law written upon my heart? So shouldn't I follow my heart? And so I, I think this is like a nuanced and thoughtful question, um, something to take very seriously. So let me um, bring up the scripture for you guys. Uh, I, it didn't load the layout for some reason or another. I'm sure a mistake of mine. Just a moment while I get that going. And we'll look at these scriptures. Um, the first thing we'll notice is the first verse that you referenced, Debbie. You referenced Jeremiah 17, 9. In Jeremiah 17, uh, 19, excuse me. Um, 9, not 19. Yeah. Okay. I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. You put it right. I just read it wrong. Okay. In this, in this verse, it says, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, to offer a little bit of background, this is a really consistent teaching in the Old Testament, right? In Genesis, it, you know, God floods the world because the, the thoughts of man's hearts and his intents are wicked all the time. And so he floods the world as a result of this continual wickedness of mankind in their heart. Um, in Jeremiah's time, in the book of Jeremiah, where we're at right now, you know, we have false prophets who are prophesying from their own hearts. Even though what they were prophesying was good news, the ideas, the beliefs, and the desires of their hearts were creating the prophecy, not revelation from God. So the heart is a big issue. You know, um, who you can't even understand your own heart is what's embedded here is like, you don't get your own heart. Now, I, I believe this firmly. <laughs> I, I think I get this. Um, I definitely do not fully understand and comprehend my own heart. There's times where you don't, you just don't get it. I don't really know what's going on in here. Um, but God does, right? He searches the heart and tests the mind. And so, and then he will eventually one day judge us each according to our, the truth of our hearts. So yeah, that, that's a big deal. But you raise the stakes with Proverbs 4.23 and you say, hey, doesn't it say that from your heart flow the springs of life? Um, well, yes, but I think that maybe here, Debbie, you're, you're misunderstanding the verse. Let me, let me share at least what I think this means. Um, keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence. Um, other translations put this slightly differently. Like let's see the NASB. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. New King James says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. And then Proverbs 4.23. So keeping your heart here, this idea is about uh, watching like, like, a, like a guard watching over a city to protect it and guard it and to be careful with it. This is very different than following my heart. This is protecting my heart that it would not be led astray because the biggest issues of my life will flow from the things that are going on inside my heart. And so guard your heart from things like bitterness. Guard your heart from things like um, un un uncontrolled uh, 
desires out of control, like lust, gluttony, um, you name it, right? These are the things that are going to mess you up. It's when, when it's your heart goes wrong, the rest of your life goes wrong. Jesus affirms this too, where he says like out of the heart flow murders and adulteries and all these things that, that comes from within us. It's not what we put in us food wise, but rather what flows out of our hearts. That's the bigger issue. So this is not a statement to follow your heart. It's a statement to be careful because your heart is a big deal. Okay, let's look then at, um, you know, your next point, which is what I find the most interesting question. Jeremiah 33, 31. I've never, or 31, 33. I've never heard somebody ask this before. And here it says, you know, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now this covenant, for those who aren't familiar, this is talking about what Jesus instituted starting at the cross. This is like the new covenant we have with God, not through the law of, of Moses directly, um, through being under that law, but through the fulfillment of that by Jesus and the instituting of a new covenant where he doesn't give us these laws on tablets, this, these rules, but rather he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be my God and they shall be my people. So there's some like change in the human heart upon salvation, right? That, that, that this moment of salvation changes something that goes on in my heart. And so shouldn't a believer inclined, be more inclined to listen to their heart? Yeah, the heart's naturally deceitful and desperately wicked, but maybe now I can listen to it because now I've had it written on my heart. So this is why I found this a really interesting question. So what we really need here is a New Testament teaching, New Testament teaching on this to ask, have our hearts been cleansed of their issues since coming to Christ? And here, I think we have lots of scripture we can talk about. I'm going to briefly just overview some of it because I want to get to the rest of the questions. I do 20 questions every uh, every Friday. And you guys, you guys, your questions are already getting loaded in and we're selecting, uh, you know, basically ones that hopefully I haven't answered in detail before. So we pass over some just because I've answered them elsewhere. You can check the website, biblethinker.org and the clip search feature to find if, if, if your question gets passed over. Maybe it's right there. Um, at any rate, here's some things. Um, Peter, Peter's like, you know, major leader in the early church, right? The apostle Peter. And you could say, was he able to follow his heart in the way that he did ministry and did things? And the answer is actually not entirely, at least not entirely, maybe in some ways, yes, but not entirely. So in Acts chapter 10, we read about Peter um, being called by God to go to the Gentiles and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But Peter has these Jew Gentile issues. He hasn't understood how the cross impacts the Jews and Gentiles differently or I should say the same, <laughs> without without partiality and without appeal to the law. And so Peter doesn't want to go to the Jews. So God gives him a vision. This, this blanket is like picnic table effectively comes down and, and God tells him, hey, kill and eat these unclean animals. And Peter's like, no, I won't do it. And the whole vision is to say, hey, God is making these Gentiles clean by the word of the gospel. So don't call them unclean. Peter had to have outside revelation from God. Here's my point that would fix his the natural inclinations of his heart in all the sincerity of his service to God that would keep him from doing what God actually wanted him to do. So he couldn't follow his heart exactly. Revelation from God was needed. Um, then we have a statement here in James chapter 1, and this is written to Christians. So is the Christian heart pure upon salvation? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm temp being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And now James is going to tell us where your temptations come from. But each person's tempted when he's when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And now desire is seated, you know, metaphorically in the heart. So my heart produces the desire the desires that become temptations for me. That comes from within, right? Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And so, um, yeah, even as a Christian, as a New Testament Christian, I have p- potentially pious confusion where my heart doesn't get it and I need direction from the word of God. I have my heart leading me towards sin because I have desires that are not still, still not godly, that are still inhabiting with me. Now, how do I reconcile these things? Like, how do I say at the same time that God's written his law on my heart, but yet my heart is still messed up and makes mistakes and both pious, well-meaning mistakes, well-intentioned mistakes, as well as just sinful desires coming from within me. Well, Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17 will give us clarity on this, I think. And what we'll find is, yes, God wrote his law on your heart, but your heart is not pure. It's now a battle. Okay, so here, uh, Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk in the spirit, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This two verse section is telling you there's an internal battle you have and I have as a Christian, an ongoing continual battle where I have both the law of God or the desires of of the spirit written in my heart, as well as my own other desires. And the Bible continually talks about this. Paul talks about a lot. He's like, put off the old man that represents that old nature, right? That's being becomes corrupt according to deceitful lusts, but put on the new man who's being renewed according to Christ. What it means is I have a battle in my heart, which is why I can't actually trust my heart. I have to look at my heart and filter everything. This is the big deal. I need a filter. I need a filter for my heart. And, and that would be my answer to you is we need a filter for our hearts because our hearts have both motives. I have godly and ungodly. And sometimes what I think is godly is actually ungodly, like in Peter's case with the Gentiles. So I could be piously ungodly following my heart. So I, I've got all kinds of issues going. I could even, First John 3.20 tells us that if our heart condemns us, don't worry, like God's greater than your heart and he knows all things. So your heart can even be telling you you're, you're not really forgiven by God, but in fact you are. So what do I, I need, I need the filter of God's word to be able to discern what's going on with my heart. Let me give you a verse for this. Hebrew, Hebrews 4.12. And then I want to apply this real quick to our culture because our culture is um, supremely stupid on exactly this issue. <laughs> okay. Uh, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The idea is that the word of God is the discerner. Now, the word of God here is, um, uh, it's a little difficult to define. We'll get into it when I do the Hebrews study, which is going to be coming um, a little bit later this year, verse by verse through the whole book of Hebrews. But <clears throat> my point here is there's something external to your heart that is needed to discern what's going on in your heart. And that external thing is God's word, not your heart's impressions about your heart, because that's a circular you're using an unreliable source. <laughs> That's the thing. So I need God's holy word to be the thing that ultimately shows me the truth of my desires. Now, here's where it's totally countercultural. Because in our culture, um, the whole sexual revolution stuff, right? Um, homosexuality, the, the, the modern support for gay lifestyle and, and, and same-sex sexual behaviors is based on the idea that your heart is telling you who you truly should be. And you should follow that heart. That's inherently unchristian because we're, we're supposed to follow God's word as the filter that tells us which motivations of our heart are good and which motivations are bad or the transgender stuff. You have transgender in my heart. It's like inside I'm a, I'm a girl, but outside I'm a boy, but I'm going to follow. My heart's going to tell me the truth of who I'm supposed to be. My heart's going to be my spiritual guide. This is what we see also in progressive Christianity. This is the commonality I think I see across tons of progressive Christians is let your heart be your guide. The Bible warns about this. 
old through New Testament, and even a born-again Christian can be led astray by their hearts. Even someone like the Apostle Peter can make bad spiritual decisions if they listen to their internal compass about these issues. So what we have to do is not dismiss my heart entirely, but run it through the filter of God's word to be able to say, okay, that part I approve, that part I reject, I'm going to follow God. And this is what I think it means in Proverbs where it says, trust the Lord with all your heart. I think that that, that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs 3, 5. I'm not trusting my heart with God, right? Like God's the one who is going to be submitting to my heart and my heart's going to guide me. That's progressive Christianity. That's our modern culture. Instead, I'm trusting my heart to God, right? I'm, I'm, I'm giving my heart over to God. God, I will trust you that you're smarter, you're wiser, and you know better than me. And that is faith. That's beautiful, beautiful faith. So before I go to the next question, I want to quickly mention something to you guys. This is um, a ministry. Um, putting it on your screen right now. Ah, okay. Well, there we go. This is a ministry I just want you to be to know about. So um, I'm not getting anything for this. No kickback. No no percentage of donations or something. Um, but I'm personally excited about a specific kind of ministry, and that's what this kind of ministry is. So I'll just tell you really quick, and I just want to expose you to them if you haven't heard of them before. So the Liangs are a family who um, came, went, retired, but then started ministering to refugees and then came out of retirement in order to so basically spend their own money to just bring funds to refugees. These are refugees who were Iraqi Christians mostly who are believers, right? They were driven from their homes in Mosul, which is like ancient Nineveh area, by ISIS a few years back, right? But now they're living in Jordan and in Jordan they can't work and they don't have citizenship and they're basically, they're, they're in extreme poverty. And so the Liangs go there and they bring them aid and they bring them uh, sustenance and you know, whether it's like a, a little stove burner that they might have or like a heater for the winter and things like that. So they're currently wanting to bless families with food coupons for the Easter holiday coming up for the Resurrection of Christ celebration. And this is their website. If you go to restoringfaithinc.org, don't go to restoringfaith.org. That's the wrong site. Restoringfaithinc.org. You can check out more about the stuff that they do and the people that they help. And you can offer to support them because personally... Here's why I'm excited about them. Um, I know them personally, so I, I see them as genuine believers, you know, to the best of my knowledge and very seriously committed to Christ. But also, I like little tiny ministries nobody knows about getting a little bit more support because we all know about like Samaritan's Purse and these giant ministries, which, which legitimately, by the way, that's, that's you guys. Hi. That's what I get to see. Nothing special there, but just, you know, um, we know about these giant ministries, but we don't know as much about these tiny little ministries that nobody ever hears about. And so finding support, uh, you know, opportunities to support like a little ministry where, you know, your support is, is, is really needed, I think is a great thing. So, yeah, if you're interested in, uh, in that, um, supporting people who are helping specifically Christians that were persecuted for their faith and, and there's others who are, who they don't, they don't stop from ministering to non-Christians too. Um, so it's all of the above, but I think their focus is a bit more on Christians, which I like um, because they're our family and we're to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters as though we are in prison with them, right? So there you go. Let's go to the next question. This is question number two coming from Ashley Joachinson or Joachinson. You know, Ashley, I, I never remember how to pronounce your name properly, so I, I apologize. <laughs> you said, I recently heard people at my church say that we get to heaven. Uh, when we get to heaven, our memories will essentially be wiped and we won't have any knowledge of our friends and family who were in hell. Thoughts? 
Um, I think this is a really um, well-intentioned and very wrong thing. Um, and I think that we can prove that it's not biblical. So let me let me say the, the, the thing that I think is leading to this is the idea that God wipes away their, over every tear and there's no more remembrance of the old things. But I think we have to understand the word remembrance and things being brought to memory is different in the scriptures and, you know, thousands of years ago, they're using this term differently than we often are today. I never say there will be no remembrance of that. Like it's not part of my vocabulary. So I don't know how to interpret that phrase in scripture in my modern vocabulary. What I have to look at is how they use it. So when God says he's not going to bring things to remembrance, I think what he, what he's saying is I will not hold you accountable for the former sins. That's what he's saying. He doesn't mean like I will literally forget it. I, I once heard a, uh, I visited a church, big church, kind of a, kind of a mega church. Um, and there was a guest teacher. So it wasn't the regular speaker there. I wouldn't put it on the, on the regular teaching there for this, but his, he taught through Isaiah where God says, I'll remember their sins no more. And he literally taught the congregation. I, just, it's like, I, I, I still am amazed that this got through. <laughs> he taught the congregation that God, when God forgets your sins, he won't remember them anymore. So he forgets them. God literally is not aware of what you did wrong. He actually doesn't remember. Like literally, he doesn't even know. Like in, God's omniscience is now off the table, right? God literally doesn't know what you did. And then the pastor put this unhealthy burden on the congregation, this guest speaker, and said that they had to also forget other people's sins. And they could do it because in faith, if God says it, you can do it. Well-intentioned, but wrong. Um, not remembering is just that. Uh, I'm not going to throw it in your face again. I'm not going to throw it back in your face. That, that's how I interpret that not remembering thing. The other, so, so yeah, when you say um, this, the former things will not be brought to remembrance, as it says in, in scripture, talking about the new heavens and new earth. I think it just means it won't be um, thrown up in our faces in a way that causes us to grieve and sorrow. It'll be more like when you go through a hard time in your life and you look back and it doesn't hurt anymore. That's what that means. It doesn't hurt anymore. You know, like it hurt, but I'm like, I'm really okay now. Like I've seen, I've seen what God did to redeem that. I've seen how he used that. And I look back and it just doesn't hurt anymore. And that's the extreme comfort of eternity. So I, I think that that's the case. Now, you said, I said I could like try to biblically prove that this was not the case. And I think that the answer is in Revelation where we, we read. I'll give you one example. Um, let me. Let me, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. I won't go to all the scriptures, but, um, but here's one. Revelation talks about this heavenly experience, you know, verse nine of chapter five. Uh, they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Now on the belief that we won't remember the past, how would you sing this in heaven? How would you sing this in, in the future? You wouldn't remember the cross. Like our memories are wiped. We don't have any knowledge of, of or is it just our family and friends in hell? Those are the only ones we don't know. Okay, well, then we have a very selective memory wipe that 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 actually challenges the justice of God. Okay, so in um, um, let me see if I can go here. Here, here's God's judgment that we read about his his judging the wicked, right? And then in Revelation nineteen six, we hear the response from the people. Right. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns, the almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So this is about that, that moment, that future, like consummation, all these things. Um, she, she's clothed herself in fine uh, linen, pure and br- bright. And then um, we're going to get to, um, I'm, sk- I'm skimming here so I can find the spot I'm looking for. Oh, I'm not, I'm, I don't know. Sometimes this happens. Where is the, oh, I skipped ahead is why. Okay. Earlier in the chapter. (laughs) Sorry guys. I fail. All right. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. So at the same, you know, season where there's like this, the consummation, the judgment's coming and the, and the bride is entering into glory. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. This already is a problem if you believe that you actually forget, completely forget about the the wicked and, and those in hell. Like you can't sing his judgments are true and just because you're like, what judgments? For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorta- immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So how is it that we praise God for the judgment that comes upon those who've persecuted and murdered Christians if we don't know about them? Right? This is this is actually contrary. So here's what I think is happening. I think that we're we we don't appreciate God's judgment. Fair enough, you don't. Um, you you know that God will judge. You know that the judgment's extreme. You you know that this judgment's going to jar you because there's people who you can think of who may be experiencing that judgment in the future, and so you don't appreciate that that judgment. So you you try to reconcile. How can I really be happy in heaven when this thing's going to happen that I'm not comfortable with, but I'm going to have total joy and comfort. And so the solution is, well, God will erase my memory from those elements. I won't remember those people at all, which to me seems like it's it's another way of saying God's actually wrong for judging them. Like he, what he did is you would you would never be able to be okay with it. So you have to be, it has to be erased from your mind. Another approach would be, I will understand. And like they do in Revelation 19, appreciate God's judgment one day. One day I will look and I will go, wow, I hadn't seen it that way, Lord. I hadn't seen how wicked sin really was. I didn't see how holy you really were. I didn't see that your judgments, like scripture says, are pure and true and righteous altogether and that you always judge justly. I didn't see that from my perspective on earth, being a sinner amongst sinners who, of course, thinks your judgments are too harsh because I'm not really righteous, am I? So I don't really have your standards. So I judge you by my standards. But now I see your standards for what they are. I see you for righteous, holy, perfect, just God. So I can say, hallelujah, the things you did are right. The judgments you did are good. I think that this is um, this is the future for the Christian. Knowing that God's judgments are good and right. Not forgetting that he judged it all because you will never be able to reconcile with it. Instead, you will finally appreciate it. And I think a humble attitude for a Christian now is to say, God, you are God almighty. You are wise and holy and righteous. And if I think for a second that I can't handle the judgment of somebody I love from you, all I need to know is one day I will understand and I can wait on that. I think that's a better approach. All right. Number three, Theo Schneckenberg says, and you have the, you have the funnest name. Is that your real name? Theo Schneckenberg? I'm sorry. Maybe it irritates you, but I think it's, I wish my name was Schneckenberg. All right. Hi, Pastor Mike says Job uh, says, oh, hi, my pastor says Job and Jonah are probably not historical events, but more poetic lessons. How do I decide true stories from parables in the Old Testament without questioning everything? 
Well, I think you can, um, we can put on the table the possibility, just the possibility, not the truth of it, but the possibility that a a biblical passage um, in, the, in the Old Testament is, is a poetic lesson and is not actual history. We could put that on the table as a possibility without questioning the Bible at all, because this is a genre analysis question. Okay, so um, let me see if I can find uh, an example. Um, in uh, you know, in the Book of Judges, there's a story where the the complaint is um, basically a story is told about the bramble being asked to become king over us. Bramble, become king over us. And then the bramble's like, sure, I'll be your king. And then the bramble like messes them all up. And nobody thinks, I know this is a weird analogy. It's the first thing that popped in my head. So the, the it's about Absalom and all this other stuff. The son, of, one of the sons of Gideon. Um, or Bimelech, excuse me, Bimelech. Yeah, interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff about that story. So um, one of the sons of Gideon from a concubine wants to become king of Israel. And, and and then they tell a story to explain this of this bramble. Um, the problem here is easy, right? Like the bramble's obviously not a true history lesson. It's a, it's a story, poetic story that's meant to teach a lesson. And this doesn't challenge your trust in God's word. You just had to correctly identify, oh, okay, Abimelech, true history. The bramble, poetic story to illustrate a point. Now it can be a little more challenging is when you start taking these, this 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 term poetic story to illustrate a point that's not real history and you put it in the wrong place because now you, you've done a false genre analysis that's actually calling true events fake events. And so there is obviously a concern there. But in principle, it's okay to ask to, to do a genre analysis. Hey, just ask what's going on here. So Jonah and Job. Um, now I haven't really heard a lot of arguments for Jonah being less than historical um, I, I'm okay with the Bible having inexact history. It, it, just like, for instance, when we when we round numbers and we we use figures of speech and idioms and things like this, that's totally appropriate. Um, it, in theory, that's okay. But to suggest Jonah's like just not history at all, um, I'm I'm personally opposed to that. I haven't heard a good argument for it, so I'm not going to be able to respond to those things. Uh, Job is a little more complicated because Job itself is so poetic. And so, like, godly believers are are genuinely, like, torn over this, okay? Um, Job is poetry all throughout. The whole book of Job is poetry, like, legitimately, whereas Jonah is not. Jonah might have a poetic thing in chapter 2 or whatever, but it, that's, itself is not just poetry. So, yeah, this is, this is different. Jo Job is a different kind of book altogether. And so people do scratch their head honestly about it. My thought is there may be some things in there... Um, I don't know if we have the record of these, of the statements of all the, of all the men perfectly accurate or not. Like, I don't know. And I don't have to make a decision about that because I don't think it's required for the kind of accuracy that Job is going for. But I'm inclined to think Job is a real person. I think that seems obvious as I read the book, right? He, Job is a real person, even if some of the, uh, back and forth discussions have been, you know, altered for poetic purposes and that that would be an understood thing, not a deceptive thing. That's an understood thing as you read the book and you just recognize the poetry that's going on there. So I guess what I'm saying is it, it, it can be a little complicated. <laughs> so I wouldn't over, I wouldn't want to overreact. I want to just start by asking questions of my pastor. What do you mean by that? Um, are you saying Job was not a historical person? Um, wh why do you say that? And just listen to his case. And you want to ask, you know, what is your reasons for this? And are those reasons really situated in simply unbelief of the word of God? 
or are they situated in, no, I think I'm correctly understanding the genre. These are different questions, and I'm, I'm going to respond to those two positions very differently. But I, I hope that helps. Um, number four, PT says, is it first that you were born again, and by that you confess Jesus as Lord and get your salvation, or you confess Jesus as your Lord first, and by that you get born again and will be granted salvation? All right, let's look at this passage. Um... So this is, uh, I'm, I'm assuming this is best based on the Romans passage. Um, it's funny, I just read this one earlier today for some reason. Why was that? I don't remember. But um, at any rate, here, here we are, Romans 10. This, I think, is the foundation of your question. Okay, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, they're treated kind of as one thing here, uh, or as something that happens kind of together. You know, you do this and this and you'll be saved. Um, verse 10 then goes on to explain a bit. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Um, so I, I think that what we've done sometimes with Romans 10, and here's my tentative thoughts on this, is that we've taken this and we've tried to turn it into more of a formula than Paul intended. Paul in Romans is building a really long, slow case that salvation comes through belief and not through works. That's his main point is you're not working your way to salvation. It's not through the obedience uh, of the law or of the rules or of moral goodness that you're going to contribute to your salvation in any way. Instead, it's just belief. And so he does add confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so, um, you know, I take this to be two sides of the same coin. Um, if you, you know, when you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, well, that's because you're believing genuinely from the heart, right? The belief that's genuine from the heart brings the confession of the Lordship of Christ. So I do see these two as connected. And so I, I don't know that he wants us to disconnect them. Your question is based on the idea of separating the two, right? Like, what if you do one and then like maybe lightning hits you and you don't do the other? Which one do you have to do to be saved? If I believe in my heart and lightning hits before I confess, am I still saved? But if I confess with my mouth and lightning hits before I've believed in my heart, am I still saved? And I'm like, well, I think that the let me use the words of Jesus to help bring clarity. He says that the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So the confession with the mouth is an overflow of the heart. It's natural. It happens automatically when you when you really believe you do confess. But if lightning were to hit you when your heart believed, but your mouth had not yet confessed, you would be saved because you just didn't have the opportunity, but it was going to happen either way. Or if someone, let's say they're mute and they cannot bring confession with their mouth. I, I think that, yeah, like God cares about our genuine belief. Paul's main point here is it's not by works. So that's where I, I say, I don't think he intended us to separate the two. I think he's trying to say, look, you just, you just fully trusted in Christ, man. You believed, you confessed, you're saved. You, you don't do the works to be saved. That's the main point. So I'll read your question one more time. I like to do this sometimes just to make sure I didn't miss something you were getting at. Um, is it first that you're born again and by that you confess Jesus as Lord and get salvation? Or you confess Jesus as your Lord first and by that you get born again and will be granted salvation? Um, Paul just doesn't talk about at what moment you're born again. He does talk about being justified when you believe 
and you confess and you're saved. But again, I don't think we should separate these two. I do think simply trusting in Christ is where salvation comes. But defining a specific moment for Christians where at this moment I was born again is a lot easier for some believers than others. Okay, in my own life, I don't have, I can't pinpoint a day and a moment. Many people can, and I'm glad you can. That's fantastic. But for some of us, it's like Nicodemus. You're like, at what point did Nicodemus get saved? Like, it just seems like this process, and I don't know when I could say, now you are lightning safe. <laughs> at this moment you weren't, and the next moment you were. And it's okay to me that I don't know how to discern those exact little moments, but I can see that it happened. And so, anyway, I, I realize I'm not giving you the clear answer. What I'm saying is I don't think there is a pat answer here, except that those who trust in Christ are saved. Uh, number five, James Raphael says, compared with Paul, is Joseph Smith such a novelty? For example, they both had a vision of Jesus, only they reported on, introduced new teachings, weren't prophesied of by Jesus, and were martyred as a result of ministry. Um, sure, Joseph Smith um, was a proven fraud. Like that's like this is kind of the biggest deal for Joseph Smith. It wasn't just that he wasn't prophesied about. It was that he's a demonstrably provable fraud. So in, let me, I wonder if I could pull this up. Um, I'm going to pull this up for you guys. Give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now, you guys know Joseph Smith is the founder of Mormonism, right? Um, well, here's the founder of Mormonism and the, the, the prophet who said he did more than Jesus. Like that's a quote from him, that he actually did more than Jesus. Oh, why can I not access their website? That's so weird. I've never had that happen. Okay. All right, here it is. Um, let me see if I can find this. So in Joseph Smith provides uh, pr prophecy and, and, um, he has a, a few things that he says that come from God that we can prove or not. So like one of them, while I'm looking for this example, I'll show you is the book of Abraham. And in the book of Abraham, what we have is, um, um, demonstrable proof that Joseph Smith was making stuff up in the name of God. Okay. We don't have this with Paul, right? So he says he got this book of Abraham. It's this scroll that they found and they brought to Joseph Smith. Hey, we bought this scroll. Tell us about it. You're, you, you have the, their version of the gift of tongues involves translating abilities. And so Joseph Smith has these translating abilities. We can show, and I have a whole video on this, that Joseph Smith faked a translation. He wrongly translated when they actually found the scroll years later, again, recovered it, confirmed by the Mormon church that that was the right scroll. And they examined it. They went, oh, this is like the Egyptian book of the dead. This is not the book of Abraham. It's a very different thing. Uh, but another example is Genesis 50. So I'll try to put this on your guys' screen. Let's see if I can maybe make it a little bigger for you. Um, I didn't prepare this, so I'm not sure how it'll go. Okay, that's uh, apparently too big. Okay, so these are verses that are added to Genesis chapter 50 in, in Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis. He has his own translation of Genesis. So here's Genesis 50 in your Bibles and every Bible, right? It's, it ends at verse 26. So Joseph died being 110, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, that's where it ends. That's where it always ends. That's where it ends in, in, in Hebrew and Septuagint and various places. Okay, but in the Joseph Smith translation, which is now on your screen, 
He claims to translate. He claims that this is a gift from God, the ability to translate. He said that his translation of the Bible was the most perfect translation ever. He's a total liar. That's like demonstrably, provably a liar. Like, like if you're if you're a Mormon, you're watching. Um, don't get mad at me that Joseph Smith lied to you, and that a whole organization has been built off of his lies, imitating Christianity. I pray you will come out of this. I pray your eyes will be open and you would see the true Jesus, and you would you would take Joseph Smith out of the formula here because he adds things that don't belong. So, um, so he adds stuff. Um, the uh, I'll start reading here what's in italics. Joseph said unto his brothers in Joseph, the Joseph Smith translation on, on the, the official Mormon church's website before, uh, before he died says, Joseph said to his brethren, I die and go unto my father's and I go down to my grave with joy. The God of my father, Jacob be with you and deliver you out of affliction in the days of your bondage for the Lord hath visited me. And I have obtained a promise of the Lord that out of the first of my loins, the Lord God, wait, there is a promise. This is a, this is a, here's a prediction that doesn't exist in the, in the actual book of Genesis, right? That out of the fruit of my loins, what are you doing? No more pop-ups. Um, <laughs> the Lord God will raise up a righteous branch out of my loins and unto thee, whom my father Jacob hath named Israel, a prophet, not the Messiah, who is called Shiloh. <laughs> this is, this is Okay. When you look at the history of the messianic predictions in the Bible, like you're not going to see these terms used in Genesis, but Joseph Smith adds them. He goes, there's going to be a new prophet, not the Messiah, not Jesus. There's another one. I'm telling you about another one. And this prophet, stop it, shall deliver my, my people out of Egypt in the days of thy bondage. And it shall come to pass that they shall be scattered again and a branch shall be broken off and shall be carried into a far country. What is this? Well, this is, this is Mormonism that there's like Jews that were traveled, that traveled um, over to America ancient America, which is not historically accurate, but right. And, um, nevertheless, they shall be remembered in the covenants of the Lord when the Messiah cometh for he shall be made manifest unto them in the latter days in the spirit of power and shall bring them out of darkness into light, out of hidden darkness and out of captivity unto freedom. Joseph Smith's whole thing was like, Hey guys, guess what? Jesus during his 40 days on the earth after his resurrection, he came to the, to, to the Americas and he witnessed to these people groups. And I have this revelation about it and it's called the book of Mormon. And so he wrote it into Genesis. He's lying. Like he's demonstrably, provably lying. He's making stuff up. They don't even use this translation in the Mormon church because they know. So a seer, let's go on. Verse 26, a seer shall the Lord my God raise up who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. I think this is where it starts talking about Joseph Smith. Thus said the Lord God of my fathers unto me, a choice seer I will raise up out of the fruit of thy loins and he shall esteem... Uh, be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins and unto him I will give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren. Joseph Smith always repeats himself a lot in his translations of stuff. And it, the Book of Mormon does it too. It's just tons of repetition. Verse 28, and he shall bring them to the knowledge of the covenant which I have made with thy fathers and he shall do whatsoever work I shall command him and I will make him great in mine eyes for he shall do my work and he shall be great like unto him whom I have said I would raise up unto you to deliver my people, O house of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. So he'll be like Moses. For a seer I will raise up to deliver my people out of the land of Egypt and he shall be called Moses. And by this name he shall know that he is of thy house for he shall be nursed by the king's daughter and shall be called her son. I'm going to keep reading because this is all added added stuff, right? Now Genesis has a prophecy about Moses. It's got a prophecy about Jesus visiting the the, you know, the Americas. And again, a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins and unto him I will give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins and not bring not 
to the bringing forth of my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them in the last days. Okay, now here, I think this is where it starts talking about Joseph. Wherefore, the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of, thy loin, of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines. Okay, there, this, this, this seer is going to write stuff. And he's going he's gonna to get rid of false doctrines and the laying down of contentions and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins and bringing them to a knowledge of their fathers in the latter days. Remember their latter day saints and also to the knowledge of my covenant, saith the Lord. So he's going to bring um, the proper theology and good theology. And out of weakness shall he be made strong in the day when my work shall go forth among all people, which shall restore them who are of the house of Israel in the last days. Remember, they Mormons see themselves as the as the new Israel. They're the they're they're Israel, right? Which is why they call Zion, right? A lot of the places they've they've named after Israeli locations in Utah because of this. Verse thirty three: And the seer will I bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise I give unto you, for I will remember you from generation to generation, and his name shall be called Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father. So some don't know this, but Joseph Smith is actually Joseph Smith Jr. So here's Joseph Smith writing provably fake Bible stuff, right? Genesis doesn't have this passage. And he writes, he writes, and his name shall be called, and he puts his name there, Joseph. And he shall be named after the name of his father, that his dad's Joseph. And he shall be like unto you, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. You could go on and read more if you guys want to. It's on, um, just, just Google uh, Genesis 50 Joseph Smith translation, and you will see it on their website. Did Paul do that? No. <laughs> you know, what else did Paul have going for him different than Joseph Smith? Paul had the right hand of fellowship from Peter. He actually went to Jerusalem. We read about this in Galatians. He went to Jerusalem, and he... Um, talked to the disciples, the apostles, and he got their right hand of fellowship. They approved that he was truly called by God to be an apostle. So we don't have that for Joseph Smith. We also have something else from Peter, and that is that Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. This is this blows my mind that this happened. Peter refers to Paul's writings, and he goes, hey, Paul writes about many things that are complicated. Some unstable people twist these to their own destruction as they do the rest of the word of God. The rest of the word of God? Meaning that Paul's writings are what? the word of God. So we have strong confirmation, strong confirmation. We also have in the first century, the miracles, of course, this is harder for you to confirm, right? But we have the miracles that were going around with Paul. So we, we have every piece is there for Paul to be legitimate. The apostles that are there, um, the gospel itself being accurate and the same, the affirmation of Peter, even about his writings. And yeah, none of that's true for Joseph Smith. It's all the opposite. So let's go to the next question. All right. Question number six. Against the Flow says, Hi, Mike. Thank you for your channel. It's been such a blessing to me. Can you please explain what the Bible says we should do about an aggressor like Putin? And should other countries intervene to help Ukraine? Okay, well, um, I, I have to first acknowledge I'm not, I don't really understand all that's going on with this stuff. Um, but from what it looks like, okay, I'll, I have to go from my perspective what it seems like. Uh, it seems like Putin is the obviously wrong aggressor like often in wars you have you have both sides that are just wrong and it's very difficult to figure out what the right thing to do is but this seems more simple at least my impression of it right now maybe 10 years i would change my mind but it seems pretty clearly that this is just absolutely wrong that they're attacking and violating um we actually have god 
talking uh, disparagingly of nations in the Old Testament for not helping other nations at certain times. And so, like, you didn't help them. You didn't help them. And so I, I think that um, Edom is an example of this. I think you can read about this in the book of Amos, where when Israel was being attacked and defeated by their enemies and they fled, tried to flee through Edom, the Edomites, would they, they attacked and picked them off instead of helping them as their refugees. So I think there's a sense in which it's like the, the real simple answer is, yeah, you help the defenseless who are wrongly being destroyed. Like this is like a good principle in life. So I think that's the case. Um, I also believe that there is such thing as just wars, like a war that's right to fight in and proper to fight in. That doesn't Now war is complicated. So within a just war, lots of bad things happen that are not just. But that doesn't mean that it's like there's a time to pick up a weapon. Like Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to kill. Right? There's a time to save and a time to kill. I believe those things are very true. I also believe in like self-defense, right? So you, Ukraine is effectively, it looks like they're doing self-defense um, and Putin's coming in and doing that. So let me read your question again to make sure I didn't miss some important aspect here. Um, you said, can you explain what the Bible says we should do about an aggressor like Putin and should other countries intervene to help Ukraine? I think intervening is on the table for sure. Right when when it when it's like this is a just war to get involved, either to um, boycott or to create sanctions or to actually send troops or perhaps military aid, but it's a challenging thing to ask because at what point? Um, okay, like I will I will defend my own home, right, for people who are attacking, but at what point do I defend my my neighbor's home? Well, pro probably pretty quickly. Probably pretty quickly, I'll go defend my neighbor's home. But at what point do I send my kid to defend my neighbor's home? Okay, now we're getting into questions of like the challenging stuff I don't know the answers to. Like at what point do I commit the sons and daughters of other people to the defense of the those who need defense in other countries? I don't know how to answer those questions. They're not the questions I deal with in life. So it's a challenge for me. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I know part of that seemed a bit of a ramble. Some of that, I, I shared the things I feel more confident about and beyond that, I'm, I don't, I mean, I'm not making decisions about these things. And contrary to a lot of people on the internet, I don't think I know all the answers to all the problems. And it's like, anybody disagrees with me is an idiot. Like, I don't, it's some stuff I'm not sure about yet. Brandon Sullivan says, what is your personal favorite aspect or quality of each member of the Trinity? Oh, I don't really have one, Brandon. Um, I hate to disappoint you there. Um, personal favorite aspect of each member of the Trinity. I mean, the different members of the persons of the Trinity, you know, you have different sort of qualities that are emphasized, right? God's fatherhood um, is obviously very deeply personal to me, um, especially in, in with my, you know, troubled father background. Um, God's better than a human father. He's bigger than a human father. He's not just a replacement for a human dad or something like that. But for those who experienced, you know, difficulties and hardship or abandonment and stuff like that, there's a special thing that, that, that you have there as you look at God as your father. And so there's a quality there that I really appreciate. Um, the Holy Spirit um, being the one who empowers, that's, I, I guess there's a special quality of the closeness of, of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and obviously Jesus is like the father and I will dwell in you but that's by the holy spirit and 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 so but yeah there's like that quality of the empowerment and the and the gifts of the holy spirit that i i think i would lean towards i guess and then the, with the son i mean I, I just look at jesus and i immediately think of the cross and his incredible loving sacrifice living the perfect life and dying and so yeah there's 
There's a lot that could be said. I guess that's where I would. That's how I would answer. Number eight, David Tagawa says, is just deconstruction. Is deconstruction just another term for deconversion? Why can't we deconstruct deconstructionism? <laughs> yeah, deconstruction is. Um, well, it's destruction is what it is. So, um, uh, you know, Christians have uh, an old school term for the type of thing that I think is good that people pretend deconstruction is about. And I say pretend because while some people who say I'm doing deconstruction, they are doing this good thing. But most of what I see is just um, plank in the eye, hypercritical attitudes towards Christians, Christianity, very shallow thinking, just enough to like find things to dismiss and ignore and reject um, so that I can then live my own life with no rules <laughs> effectively or with my own rules, I should say. It's not no rules. It's more like rules I like, rules I'm gonna, I, I, wanna, I wanna deal with. And so, yeah, I think it tends to be, deconstruction tends to be hypercritical, lack of self-awareness, shallow, shallow thinking when it comes to theology and stuff like that. And it's easy to demonize something when you think really shallow about it, right? The pop atheists have been doing that for a long time. Um, so what's the word that I would recommend people actually do where it could be a good thing is, is reformation. And, and here I'm not saying that you agree with the refer, with all of the doctrines and beliefs of the reformers from the 16th century. That's not what I'm saying. But the idea that was behind that was great. The idea that was behind that was let's go to the text and let's ask ourselves if we've added to it, if we have our own baggage we've put on top of it. And, and here's, here's how I put it all the time. Think biblically about everything. So when you do deconstruction, and the first thing you deconstruct is your trust and faith in the word of God, you are already way off the reservation of Christianity, right? This is why it ends up being deconversion. There's, there's an interesting thing that happens for those who are going through deconstruction is maybe not initially, but eventually after a while, they find comfort in thinking that the Bible is wrong. This to me is a huge red flag. Like if you're comforted by thinking the Bible's wrong, there's something going on here that's not about what you think it's about. But I have God's word, okay? This is foundational to Christianity, is God has revealed himself to mankind through his word. And I don't just mean Jesus, but I mean the Bible. You don't even know about Jesus apart from the Bible. And so, yeah, like, this is important that we align ourselves to scripture. And it's totally okay to say, hey, um, you know, my church has this tradition that we do. I, I want to examine, is that really accurate? Like, is that really right? Is that biblical? I've been taught, like the question we had earlier from Ashley, she was like, hey, I've heard some people say, you know, our memories will be wiped of our loved ones who are not saved after we get to heaven. Is that, is that, is that biblical? Like, this is a great question to ask. But the difference here between deconstruction and reformation, the term I'll use, or thinking biblically about everything, is deconstruction is about destroying the restrictions and requirements of any kind of religious stuff so that I can create my own new thing. It might be atheism, might be hopeful agnosticism, which is to me the most vapid thing I've ever heard of. Or it might be um, my own sort of pop, you know, or maybe progressive Christianity, which is, Christi which is I call it Christian, but it looks just like the culture. It's just usually the really liberal culture. Um, no, instead, what I'm doing is I'm doing faithfulness to God and his word. And I'm opening the script and I'm letting God speak to me and reveal things to me. And this keeps God as the authority and me as the responder instead of deconstruction, which makes me the authority. And then God responds to me. I reconstruct, if I have God at all, I reconstruct him the way that I think he ought to be. 
that's called idolatry. So yeah, the uh, the deconstruction thing is um, valuable in that it helps us to reassess whether the things we've inherited from others are good and right, but it's done so horribly that it all it does is create a, a new cultural religious reconstruction that's based upon planks in the eye and not observing things properly, being hypercritical of others. And you see it all the time. The way that people talk right now about like, well, I was raised evangelical and I'm ex-evangelical because this stupid thing and those dummies there. And it, it's as though um, there's there's no nuance. There's no careful evaluation of things. It's just those bad guys. Now I'm going to do my own thing. Faith Harbor says, hi, Pastor Mike. Why does God ask who told you that you were naked in Genesis 3.11? Does he not know? Thank you for your ministry. Um, no, I, I think that we, we we should think of God almost interacting, to, to, to be real simple here. Well, let, let me bring you guys up to speed. So Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and then they clothe themselves, right? They, they put like leaves or on, you know, plants to clothe themselves. And God says, you know, what's up? And he's like, well, we, we were naked and we, were, we hid, you know, well. God says, who told you you were naked? Okay, this is this is the passage. And um, why does he do this? Well, I, I think that we should consider God like a parent here. Um, parents ask their kids questions they know, they know the answers to in order to provoke a conversation that needs to happen. And so that's what I think God's doing there, right? Like, we need to talk about this. Adam, who told you you were naked? <laughs> we ate of the fruit. You know, it's like it provokes a conversation that has to happen. Parents do it all the time, use questions in order to bring out a confession, bring up a topic that needs to be discussed. So I, I just think it's that. Um, of course, God God knows exactly what's going on. God is omniscient. Uh, he's aware of all things. All right, number 10, Joshua Bruner says, what do you do when your spouse who claims to be a Christian has separated, said they want a divorce, and they don't have biblical grounds, and the church that married you won't confront them? Um. So Josh, I'm going to recommend you check out my whole series on divorce and remarriage. I mean, it's a bunch of videos, but when you're in the middle of your situation, it's worth watching that. I'll put the playlist in the link below. Maybe mods, can somebody put the, the, the not just the video on divorce, but the playlist on divorce and remarriage in there? Because there's a thousand questions that I try to answer really carefully, building scripture upon scripture and adding nuance and all that, that are in there that I can't do in a Q&A. But let me say, like, if you just ran to me and gave me this as your story, my response to you would be, um, you know, I'll read it again. What do you do when your spouse who claims to be a Christian has separated, said they want a divorce and they don't have biblical grounds and the church that married you won't confront them. Um, I think that the, um, Galatians, let me give you, let me give you the verse. This is not a judgment against you. This is, I'm, I'm asking you to do this process. Okay. I hope you hear me there. <laughs> okay. Um, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is this is the first step you want to have towards your wife. This attitude you want to have towards her is try to restore her in a spirit of gentleness. But before you do that, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The level of temptation to sin right now in attitude or actions or your perspective, like the way you retell the story of what's really going on in your in your relationship, is so, so high. The temptation that any of us would have to feel like we're the good guy, we're the innocent party here, is so high that it takes really careful and prayerful in introspection to be able to honestly assess what's gone on, what maybe has gone wrong on your side. And I'm not saying that invalidates what she's doing wrong. What I'm saying is, um, 
that you have to examine yourself first. This is where Jesus says, you know, um, for you to get your plank, the plank out of your own eye first, then you'll see clearly to help the other person. Now, maybe you're already doing this. So I'm not suggesting you're not, Joshua, but this is a process everybody has to go through. Okay, my spouse left me. I'm so upset at what they're doing and I have a laundry list of all the things they've been doing. But let me set that aside for a moment and let me make the laundry list that, that, that they have and let me respond to all of those things honestly. Do that self-assessment first. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, right? So then go to her and seek for restoration. I would seek counseling. I would, I would do whatever you could to restore this marriage. Um, but one of the things that can be really challenging is believing your spouse. Like, and again, forgive me if this doesn't apply to you, Josh. You just ignore it if it doesn't apply to you. Okay, I'm just talking generally here. Um, in a lot of marriages, some of the regular aggravations that come up are from not believing a spouse. Like they have a complaint, you know, you do this and it bugs me, you do that. And, and then you get it and you get basically numb to the complaints because you don't really believe them. Like, yeah, they just say that. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe them. And that can be one of the hardest things is to, is to deal with is those roadblocks of not believing each other. Maybe there's an element of like love believes all things that's there. I don't know. That, that, that's the toughest part of 1 Corinthians 13 to understand is that phrase, love believes all things. But, um, but I'd recommend really considering the, the things that your spouse has that are problems. It doesn't mean that they're 100% right. This is not a who's right and who's wrong issue. It's a where am I wrong? Let me deal with that first issue. So God help you, man. Um, I'm sorry that the church, you said, won't confront them. Um, make sure that you're not, if you, if you are going to the church and you're, and they perceive that you're trying to use them as a tool and they don't feel that they're getting all the story, I understand that they'd be resistant. Otherwise, maybe they're just tired or busy or, or maybe for some reason they just don't feel like it. Um, that's unfortunate. I would continue to pursue for church involvement, but, uh, but God bless you. God help you, Joshua, and may he restore your guys' marriage. Um, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Number 11, this is Michael Mole who says, why did Paul go to Jerusalem to preach to the Jews in the temple when it seems he knew very clearly he was called to be an apostle of the Gentiles? He chose Jerusalem before he went to Rome. Thanks. Um, yeah, in fact, he never even intentionally went to Rome. I mean, he went there. It was like it was like he was dragged there because he went to Jerusalem, got arrested, had to appeal to Caesar. He ended up in Rome. So he didn't really go there the normal route of like mission trip you know um but yeah why did paul go to jerusalem this is a challenging passage in acts a section in acts where paul says that he's bound in the spirit to go to jerusalem and the you know the impression i have is that he feels he must obey like that he's called finally to tell them in jerusalem about the gospel and so i think paul feels that this is something he should do he thinks it's something god wants him to do but then you have this story where Agabus, one of the, I think it's Agabus who does it, one of the prophets, he, he warns them that the, you know, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound in chains and he's going to be bound in, uh, I think fetters is the term. And the church then pleads with him and it says this, in the spirit, they plead with him not to go. And so this leads to a debate like, wait, are they right saying, Paul, don't go. We're pleading, we're pleading you in the spirit or by the spirit not to go. Um, or are, is Paul right when he says he's bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem? And everywhere he goes, he says to the people, the spirit testifies him that chains await him. Chains and imprisonment await him when he goes. Um, I'm inclined to think that we're just not understanding it properly when it says they, they like appeal to him in the spirit or by the spirit not to go. I think rather 
maybe what this means is, hey, Paul, look, the Spirit's telling you that you're going to be in chains, so don't go. Maybe that was what they were saying. So it wasn't them having discernment in the Spirit. It was them just appealing to what the Spirit had revealed. Paul's response then, hey, everywhere I go, I'm the Spirit's testifying I'm going to be put in chains, but I'm bound by the Spirit to go. So I think Paul's answer is, I'm going because I think this is what God wants me to do. The Spirit's guiding me to this, and I'm going to be put in prison, and I know it ahead of time. So I'm preparing. This is why he calls like the Ephesian elders and he has this like last minute, la like last charge to them before he goes. He's like, hey, I'm about to be going to Jerusalem and things are going to go bad for me, you know. And so that preparation helped him help his other churches before he was taken from them, at least temporarily in prison. Um, it seems like he may have been released after that. We're not entirely sure. Um, he may have. Yeah, that's, not, that's another debate. So um, why then did Paul do this when he was called to go to the Gentiles? Um, well, I think he was called to go to the Gentiles, but that doesn't mean he could never go to the Jews. So Peter's an example of this. Peter is the, an apostle to the Jews. That's his sort of sphere of focus is the Jews. But yet in Acts chapter 10, he goes to the Gentiles and God makes him do it. He goes to the Gentiles, Cornelius, right? This, this, this Gentile who's like wanting to hear the gospel. And then it's a big deal. It's a really important moment. So his focus was the, the, the Jews, but he was called to the Gentiles as well on occasion. And I think Paul's the same way. You know, I'm going to send you focus. Your focus is the Gentiles. Doesn't mean you can never witness to the Jews. And in fact, in every town Paul went to, he first went to the synagogue and he witnessed to the Jews. But his fruit, the fruit of his ministry was primarily among Gentiles. So it's not exclusive. It's just more the focus of his ministry. Um, an anonymous question says, a loved one is struggling with the idea that God would forgive an abuser or murderer if they started following God after their evil actions? What can I say to help them through this doubt? Um, this is a challenging thing because it's highly emotional. Um, and I'm not saying that as an insult. I'm not insulting the person who is asking the question. I just want to acknowledge that this question, and, and, and I've heard it put this way, like you're telling me that like if, if a man like killed my son, murdered my son, and then he repents, God's going to forgive him? I don't want nothing to do with that. And, and But now at this point, the emotions are so high that clear thinking starts to fall away. So let's break it down into a couple pieces. The, the part of us that says, I don't want them to be forgiven, part of that, a piece of that, is a cry for justice in the world. Like it's, we're going, hey, that guy deserves to be punished. Like he should be punished. And there's a sense in us that it's not even a bad thing. It's like we're crying for justice. Okay, it's just wrong. That he got away with that and just goes like, I'm sorry. And now he's fine. Everything's fine. But that cry for justice, while it's good, should also bring an awareness to how much we deserve wrath for our own sins. Because I have sinned against God greatly and countless times. And while I see that the murder as this huge sin, I've minimized my own issues before God. And God's righteousness cries for justice against that. It's not right that you just get away with it. But enter the cross. So the cross enters in, and this is what I would want to share with a friend. I'd say the cross enters in and says, look, Jesus died for my sins and your sins so that God's justice was answered by the punishment of my sins through Christ on the cross. And that includes a murderer. So it's hard to argue with that. The idea that God did deal with justice by, rep, you know, as Adam represents us in the garden, so Jesus represents all of us on the cross. And if you put faith in him, then he did actually pay. Like a payment was made for the murder of the son. A payment was made by Jesus on the cross, his own blood for it. 
But then I think what what lingers and is still bothering me that's left over after saying that is this idea that this person is just still a punk and a murderer. Like this, all they did was like, Lord, I'm sorry. And now they're forgiven. And here's where I say, we have to understand the fullness of the gospel is not just um, believe and you're forgiven. It's believe and you're transformed. God, God gives them a new heart. They're born again. And in eternity, maybe even now they still struggle and they're, it's mixed, right? Spirit and flesh, they have both. But in, e- in eternity, this person is a different person, right? They're the same soul, the same individual, but they're a different kind of person. They're a person who's been redeemed and set free. Like me in heaven, guys, I'm going to be so much better than I am now. I'll be free of all my pride, of all my selfishness, of all of my carnal stuff that I deal with on a very daily basis. And I will be walking in holiness. And so tell the story this way. Jesus dealt with the justice that you sense needs to happen with that person. If he rejects Jesus, God will deal with them himself. But if he embraces Christ, he not only embraces forgiveness, he embraces change. And how much better that God would take a man who is horrible and murderer, forgive him and transform him for eternity. Now, maybe he's not that great at the moment, but there's a time coming when you will see the work of the spirit of God in that person's life. And you'll be able to rejoice too that God brought redemption out of such horrible sin. So it's not just forgiveness. It's also transformation. Kyle Root Baldwin has a question. It says, biblically thinking, are the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter different regarding sorcery? Lots of Christians disapprove of Harry Potter yet admire Lord of the Rings. Is this distinction biblically justified? Um, some of this stuff gets into gray areas that I don't, I don't draw down a hard line on. Uh, and I leave it to people's conscience, right? Because I go, ooh, you know, this really is, I'm not really sure exactly how to handle that. I'm not going to make a rule for other people on a topic like that. But let me talk about some of the things we can consider. Okay, and I'm going to add in here um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, so for an illustration. So C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, he has a, a he has a witch in his book, right? The White Witch. And she's she represents Satan. Like, they're, allegorically, this is supposed to be Satan. And... Um, one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis chose a white witch, right, is not because she's pale skinned or she represents white people, which would be more of a modern thing, um, but because she's supposed to represent white magic. C.S. Lewis knew that witchcraft was an active thing going on in England at the time, and he didn't, and he wanted to make sure that he kind of like showed that even white magic, even supposed good magic is actually not good. Okay, that was like a little side thing that he was doing in there in his work. Um, now, Lord of the Rings is very different. Lord of the Rings has these these magic using people. They're not exactly humans, right? Gandalf and there's like a few others. Um, they're not exactly humans and they do use magic. And there's things like magic rings and stuff like that. And it's a little bit mixed, right? Like it's considered positive or negative. But here's the difference right? With 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 between, say, Lord of the Rings and... Um, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings is in a different universe. Like it's not even remotely the same kind of universe we're in right now. And so it sort of feels like a bubble world to me. Like, and I can understand this. It feels like a bubble world. Like this is, guys, this isn't commentary on reality here. This is just storytelling using different ideas. Um, And so we're, at least that's how it feels as I'm reading it. Okay, that's my impression as a reader. Um, Now, uh, Harry Potter feels a little bit more like modern times, but magic is real. Um, now, even on Harry Potter, I would leave it to people's conscience whether they wanted to enjoy this or not. Okay, and, and I know that's going to really irritate some people. Okay, so I'm I'm sorry. 
I, I do it every day <laughs> to somebody. Um, by the way, we have all 20 questions in. I didn't tell you guys this. We have all 20 questions in. So I, you know, you don't, don't place any more. I mean, I, you can put them in the chat if you want, but I just can't get to more than what we've already got. But, um, but let's talk about Harry Potter. Um, Harry Potter, is it presenting magic that corresponds to the real world and real pursuit of magic? Um, okay, here's where I don't know that much about modern witchcraft, but I'm thinking not that much, but maybe a little. Okay, this is very different than Lord of the Rings because there does seem to be some measure of overlap between actual modern witchcraft and Harry Potter, but it sure is a little and not the whole thing. Like there isn't, okay, magic wands and using, you know, saying those words and stuff like that. Like it just doesn't feel at all like modern actual witchcraft. What would bother me a lot more, what would be a lot more clearly wrong is a book that actually promotes what, what witch covens actually do in real life. Okay, that's where I'm like, okay, now we're, we're, we're no longer just blurring a realm between fantasy and reality. We're actually just creating material that's promoting this. Um, so in my view, <laughs> Harry Potter is, is about the maturity of the individual watching it. Um, and that to me is where I draw the line. Okay, but I'm not making a rule for others. It'd be like, hey, I wouldn't want like a five-year-old watching this because I do think it's going to make them more inclined to experiment with that sort of thing in the long run. I do think so. And there's a major rise in the use of um, occult stuff right now. And is that related to Harry Potter? Well, it maybe, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Um, that seems like it's feasible to me. Yeah. But is it directly promoting it? It's more indirectly. Okay, so I'm going to leave this up to the maturity of the individual watching it and their ability to process these things. So, yeah. That's how I, I do it now. Maybe I'm wrong, you guys. You just you asked for my opinions on those things. Um, do I have a plain scripture to share on this? Well, I mean, the scripture is super clear and plain on witchcraft being evil. Don't mess with this stuff. So the only question I have to do is I have to say, by watching uh, Lord of the Rings or, say, Harry Potter, am I messing with that stuff? Well, neither Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter are actually what that stuff was. They're both fantasy-type things using motifs and ideas. And so that's where I'm going to leave that up to the individual viewers. Yeah, because it's not a clear parallel to me. All right, number 14. HeckBR2 says... Should, shouldn't a truly born-again believer desire to read the scriptures regularly, even daily? How should I approach and encourage a Christian who doesn't? God bless you, Mike. Hey, I think Christians stress too much about their desires. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, on, on two sides you have, oh, I feel bad that I don't, I don't want to read the Bible more. I don't want to worship God more. I don't want to serve God more. I don't want to do these good things. More. And I think like, hey, just don't worry about it too much. Just do the right thing. Um, that may seem trite but I think it's a very powerful and liberating truth. On the other side, you have people who will not read the Bible because they don't want to. And here is a person who probably in lots of areas in their life, they become slaves to their desires instead of doing the right thing. And this is a different issue. As a Christian, I should just do the right thing. I, I mean, as a human being who tries to pursue godliness and goodness, I should just do the right thing, whether I feel like it or not. And I always think of this moment. I had a, I was uh, in a worship band, had a bass player, and I was trying to get him to play something. I, I probably wasn't being very musically skilled at the time, but I remember trying to get, yeah, just do this, do this, do this thing with the bass, da, da, da. and he just kept going like, Mike, I don't know, man, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. And you know, looking back, I now I know what he meant by that. I don't think I understood it at the time, but um, 
But for some people, you're like, yeah, man, you should probably be in the word. You know, being in the word's healthy. It honors God. It equips you with truth. You're, you're putting on the whole armor of God. You're taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You're educating yourself on the truths of Christ. You're able to interact with the world. It's just, a, you know, on those things and talk to them about it. It's just a really good thing, man, to be in the word. Yeah, I'm just not feeling it. If you're held back from reading the Bible because you don't feel like it, that's a different issue. That's an issue of I don't, I don't do good things I don't feel like doing. That's a character thing. So um, learn, to do, learn to do hard things that you don't feel like doing is my advice there. Shouldn't a, a truly born-again Christian desire to read the scriptures regularly? Um, I mean, ideally, I'm, but I will not use that as a test for whether they're truly born again because the Bible makes it clear that my heart is a whole muddled mess. And yeah, I've got the spirit, but I also have the flesh. So it, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to test your Christianity based on your desires, um, but based upon your statements of faith in Christ and a life that seems consistent with that. And then I'll say, yeah, you're probably born again. Number 15, Elijah Rock 92 says, what's the difference between Reformed theology and Calvinism? It seems like the two are different, but also the same. Just curious to know all the different groups within this body of believers. So, you know, um, to many people, they're the same thing. Um, I think Calvinism is perhaps, you know, when I just hear the word used, I'm going to give you my, my vibe on this, okay? How I'm feeling it. <laughs> no, no pun intended. Um, so my vibe on this is that when people say Calvinism, they usually are trying to just focus in on um, like Tulip on these, on these points, these five points of Calvinism. And then when they say Reformed tr tr Theology, uh, what I think they mean to do is, is they include those five points, but I want I think they want to bolster it by saying the whole movement of the Reformation includes all of these things. And so to me, Calvinism provides a lot of clarity about what you're believing, but the term Reformed theology provides a lot of clout. This is Reformed theology. So my vibe on it is that, is that it, it, it Reformed theology, the way most people use it, they do mean Calvinism, but not just Calvinism. They mean the whole tradition of go back to the texts and and for Reformed theology would include sola scriptura, right? Sola fide. Like these are things that I would agree with, even though I'm not a Calvinist. So this is why I feel like I'm in the Reformed tradition. I feel like I have Reformed theology in many ways, but I'm not a Calvinist. So yeah, I guess I would draw a small circle, distinctions of Calvinism, call that Calvinism, and I would draw a larger circle, Reformed theology, which most people think includes Calvinism, and I would be like, well, I don't know, I don't know if it really is. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that, that's, how, that's how I look at it. Mike Grigas says, how should we carry our cross in a practical sense? Thank you, thanks for your ministry. So there's this interesting statement by Jesus about carrying your cross. Um, and let me just say, there's there's two very different approaches we could look to it. We could say, well, Jesus's cross was the death penalty. So me carrying my cross is me being willing to die for Christ. Um, um, now, that would be a way of carrying your cross. Very, very true. That would be a way of carrying your cross. Um, but then we have Luke 9.23. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, this seems to be a different thing. Now, carrying the cross isn't just willing to be martyred for the faith. It's a daily thing. I mean, you're not going to do that every day, but the cross is a death sentence. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, let's read on. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and of the, and of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Of course, next thing that happens, transfiguration. Just so someone's, I know someone out there, you're like, wait, what? They won't die till they see the kingdom. Yeah, they, they see it in the transfiguration. Every gospel is the same there. Um, so yeah, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer, Jesus says. I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die and rise on the third day. And you're going to have to take up your cross if you want to follow me too. Does that mean dying? Well, it's a daily thing too. So it means more than that. You know what I think it means? I think it means in practical terms, um, making daily decisions between this world and God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is uh, is honoring uh, God in ways that makes sacrifices in this world, whether that means I lost friends because I preached the gospel to them, whether that means I lost respect or YouTube viewers because I, I shared the truth on an issue, um, or if that means d dying to myself and not sinning, right? I'm choosing the kingdom of God over my own desires here. Or if so, so, so dealing with sin issues as well. And storing up treasures in heaven so that my, the pursuits of this life are ultimately, in my mind, my main pursuit is I'm a disciple of Christ and I want to see people come to Christ. My main pursuits are not preparing for retirement, storing up treasures on earth, but my main pursuit, my number one pursuit is heaven and storing up treasures in heaven. So all of these are, I think, part of that. So, um, you know, do you give with your in, your in your finances? Do you use your finances where you can to support the work of the kingdom of God? Do you involve yourself in ministry in some fashion or form, whether that's outreaching to your neighbors, witnessing to your friends, being sort of like that Christian reliable person in your family that they can look out to, helping out with ministry things, whether it's in the church or parachurch, right? But, but you're just doing things for the kingdom of God. These are all things about taking up your cross because it's making a decision between this world, temporary stuff, and the eternal kingdom of God, stuff that never fades. I, I think that's how I look at it. Bin King says, how can the accounts of Jesus's birth in Matthew and Luke be reconciled when Joseph says that Quirinius didn't become governor until after the banishment of Archelaus? Um, let me take you guys, if I can find it quickly. Um, if I can find it quickly. Let's go. So here's, there's a difference between Luke, what Luke says, and what Josephus, a first century Roman historian says. And Luke says, let me go to the passage here, Luke 2.2. He talks about the census that was happening when Jesus was born that caused them to go to Bethlehem because they had to go to their own hometowns. And here in Luke 2.2, it says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is the census, the registration. Um, so the statement in Josephus is that Quirinius was actually governor at a later time, like after the, clearly after the birth of Christ and the time that's given here that he was like, it was, I think it was like six AD or something like that. The Quirinius was a governor. And so there's a various things people say about this. Um, I mean, the easiest answers are simply that Josephus is wrong and Luke is right. Now, I mean, this might sound trite to somebody, but just take a moment to really consider it. We have two sources that disagree with each other. Josephus, right? And Luke. Luke is seen as an incredibly reliable historian in Luke and Acts. He's very, very reliable. Josephus actually does make several mistakes we know about. He makes a bunch of them. 
He exaggerates things. And in particular, Josephus is most reliable for the stuff that happened while he was alive and active as an adult. He's very reliable. The stuff that he writes about things from earlier, from before that time, he's not as accurate. That's possible. So that, that that's one simple thing. It's like, oh, well, you're picking between Luke and Josephus here. Um, I'm inclined to trust Luke, especially given all the other evidence I have that the Bible is God's holy word. So that, that seems strong to me. I don't have evidence that Josephus is God's inspired word. So as a Christian, that's kind of important to me. Um, others would say, well, it's the word governor. Uh, Quirinius, he, you know, he was, he was in a role, but not the role that Josephus talks about. This is a different role that Luke is talking about. Others will say Quirinius had multiple times where he was governor. He was governor here. He was governor at a later time as well. That's what Josephus talks about. Um, and... Um, others, I think this is Blomberg, Craig Blomberg's view. I think, I hope I don't get this wrong. He talks about it in his book about, uh, can we trust the gospels? And it's not the name of it. Sorry. I just don't remember. Um, anyway, he gets into this issue and he, and he says, look, it's just the, it's just a Greek issue. Um, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's just one word in, in the, in the Greek there that you could translate easily trans and fairly translate differently so that it becomes, um, the registration, I think, before Quirinius was governor. And then all of a sudden, the whole timeline changes. So what I'm suge I'll suggest this, after saying all those things, it seems a lot to ask me to throw out the reliability of the gospel of Luke based upon something that seems like it has an awful lot of question marks about it. Josephus is not perfect. Okay, He's not the inspired word of, inerrant word of God. Um, with the, the question about whether it's governor, the simple alternate translation of the term that, that all would resolve these issues just fine. I, I'm not going to give up on my trust in the scriptures on this issue. So um, how can the account of Jesus' birth be, how can they be reconciled when Josephus says that Quirinius didn't become governor until after the banishment of Archelaus is, yeah, maybe he was governor more than once. Maybe Luke saying it was before Quirinius was governor. It was the first registration before Quirinius was governor. Um, he may be saying that as well. So yeah, uh, you guys might check out Craig Blomberg. He's done some work on this. Um, I know uh, Inspiring Philosophy, another Christian YouTuber, he's done some stuff on Quirinius as well. I can't remember what he says about it. Might, might check it out. 18, another Bible thinker. That's the, your, your, your YouTube name is great. You are another Bible thinker. I like it. Um, I'm hoping to create lots and lots of Bible thinkers. Um, I thought Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 verse 8 and the Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 28.2, we're talking about the same event. I heard a Bible prophecy teacher said it was two separate events. Your thoughts? I have to honestly say I have not worked through these things in a long time. And so I don't, I don't have, I don't have a conclusion for you. Let's just read the verses though for the, for the interest of people who are watching. I know you guys are probably interested. Ezekiel 28 says, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you've said, um, I don't think this is the Gog and Magog verse you wanted. It is the same verse you put in the question. It's all right. I can, I can do this. I can do this. I 38 two. was it 38 two? I'll bet it was son of man. Set your face toward Gog, the land of, uh, of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you. O Gog, chief prince Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn, Turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army and horses and horsemen. We can read on. Um, I mean, it. You know, I don't know. I I need, I need to like freshly spend a bunch of time in this Ezekiel. The last several chapters of Ezekiel 
are like some of the most difficult prophetically for me to understand exactly how I would interpret them. And of course, that's what you're asking about. But then in Revelation 20, verse 8, we have, um, and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together, to gather them for battle. Um, so Gog and Magog, there, there's there's an idea of gathering. There's a connection of, of like fish hooks in their nose, you know, pulling them out. So you could say there's a connection to Ezekiel. The question is, is it the same event? I don't really know. I don't really know the answer to that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so uh, I have failed you. You must find another Bible thinker, <laughs> yet another, to help you with that. Uh, number 19, the footsteps of thy soul says, should the writings of Christian mystics be avoided? My friend wants me to study uh, Jin Guyon book, uh, a book by Jean Guyon. How do you pronounce the name? Um, what little I've seen from Christian mystics, I would want to avoid. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I would also say this, that what, because I haven't read a lot of the Christian mystics myself, right? Um, but every teacher I know who leans on these, these, these mystics, these Christian mystics is like heretical. It's like everyone who starts quoting the mystics and getting deep into these mystics, every one of them has significant problems spiritually, biblically, doctrinally every one of them and that I've heard. So maybe there's some that exist that haven't. I'm just saying this is by, by my personal bubble experience. And so th this would throw up a bunch of red flags. Um, so I guess the question I would ask f for you is, because I might do this with a friend if I had the time, um, is do you have the ability, just be real honest about yourself, do you have the ability to really truly discern subtle error if you read it from one of these mystics? And if the answer is yes, then Maybe you should read it with your friend and walk them through it and help them and point out problems. And then you can you can both grow together. Now, but if, if you don't really have that, if that's not like a skill that you've come with, that ability to like discern subtle error and explain it, then maybe you should avoid it for that reason, you know, and stick to what you consider to be known and faithful resources. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be my counsel. Number 20, this is from Theophilus Sagamoro, who says, is there a reason why a doctrine as important as the Trinity isn't explicitly declared in the Old Testament, especially the Torah, seeing as belief in the second person is paramount for salvation? Um, let me, there's a lot I would want to say about this. Let me think of what I want to say. Um, so go back and, and here's, here's part of the reason why the doctrine of the Trinity isn't as explicit as you would probably want it to be. Okay, from your modern perspective, you're dealing with a monotheistic culture, generally speaking. Okay, paganism and polytheism is on the rise, but it's still generally we have a monotheistic culture um, for those who do believe in God. And so explaining the doctrine of the Trinity, the challenge is explaining the deity of Christ, right? Um, however, going back in time to when the Old Testament was written, this was not the problem. The problem was not lack of knowledge of the Trinity. It was lack of knowledge of monotheism. And so the Old Testament's emphasis is on teaching monotheism. There's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one God. This is really strongly, strongly reinforced. Now, I think that there are those who believed in God without knowledge of the Son who still were saved in the Old Testament. And I have a video on this, which I always recommend to people because it comes up over and over again in questions. And that is the video that says, um, what about those who never hear the gospel? And I go through this in detail. So I'll, I'll put a link below. Mod, can, one of the mods, could you guys put, I appreciate you being there. Uh, could you put a, a link to that video? What about those who never hear the gospel in the live chat as well? 
Um, now, the um, uh, the idea here is that the Old Testament labors really, really hard to teach monotheism. Like the whole creation account, it's just reinforced monotheism. God made it all. And the stuff, the sun, the moon, the stars, the stars, these aren't beings. These are things that God made. They're not. It's not polytheism. God's not going through an epic battle with, with cosmic powers to create. He just creates by declaration of his word. Now, embedded in the Old Testament are these things that are very Trinitarian throughout the Old Testament. So we have like statements in scripture where it says, then Yahweh uh, brought fire from Yahweh out of heaven and he brought judgment onto Sodom and Gomorrah. And here we have like a theophany, which I would say is a Christophany, where there's like a being that shows up on earth to be like the mediator. And here he seems to be, God, he's Yahweh. He's called Yahweh. And then Yahweh rains fire from Yahweh. But we have this, this danger as the Trinity is being hinted at in the Old Testament, that this polytheistic culture is going to misinterpret it and think there's three gods. So the Bible does this balancing act, teaching that there's only one God to a culture that would believe in, in tritheism instead of the Trinity, if, if the Trinity was simply revealed uh, more, more like in your face. And then getting to the New Testament and reinforcing that, that Jesus is in fact a different person, but also God, right? That there's, there's the, 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 the tri-personal God. And so like this, I see this balancing as a progressive revelation through scripture. When you see it in its cultural context, you go, okay, monotheism was the bigger issue. And then as we get to the revelation of Jesus, of course, now there's even a greater need to explain the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament, because we have the second person here and he becomes the focus of our faith. So I, I hope that this, this answers it. I think that sometimes we're, we're a little, we're a little narrow when we come to the Bible and we think, why aren't you a answering all my current cultural questions really clearly? And we forget that God designed the scriptures to answer questions throughout time to tons of different cultures, which is why it won't always be the easiest for your culture to get the answer to that question, right? It'll be there, but it may not be as easy as you'd like because it's, it's answering these things to so many cultures and so many different people in time. So I think we, uh, we have to do a little digging for those types of things. So yeah, but there is tons of stuff in the Old Testament that encourages the Trinity. Even the term Elohim, there, there's a plurality there. It, it's when you have in Hebrew, uh, that's the word they choose for God. God created heaven and the earth. Um, when you have the word Elohim, there's a plurality there. It's the I am at the end of it is plural. It's like putting an S at the end of an English word, Elohim. But Elohim is clearly only one. And so he's, he's that plural word is united with singular I think it's verbs. And so you've got only one being that's being discussed there, but there's some kind of hint of plurality that's there, but it's only hinted at because, again, polytheism would take over. <clears throat> there's my theory on it. Thanks, guys, for joining. Um, I will be with you Monday. The next installment in the Women in Ministry series is coming on Monday. I'll be talking through the creation passages of Genesis. I'm still prepping all my notes on that, and it's going to be... Um, we're going to get into all the debates. It's going to be significant length video <laughs> as we tackle all that stuff and you get to hear hopefully from both sides and um, I'm really interested in getting your guys feedback it's been really positive so far I'm surprised at how many people are watching it to be completely honest with you maybe you're not surprised but I am um, I've done lots of series that I thought were really important that just they don't get that many views and I'm fine with that I don't do it for the numbers of views I do it for the impact of the content right and this is important so I'm going to do it um, but we'll see We'll see if, if we keep getting a lot of people watching it in the long run or not. Anyhow, I will see you guys then. And um, 
Um, I think that's it. There was something else I want to tell you. I don't know. God bless you. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Remember that when you don't understand things that are going on, you can't understand the goodness and trust in God. You can understand he just is worthy of your trust. And that this Christian thing, yes, it involves doctrines we believe, but those things that you believe are about the person you're trusting. And this is about your relationship with God, that you're trusting and relying in him, that you are just, you wait on him. He'll strengthen your heart. He'll encourage you. And while I want to figure everything out just like you, you also need to figure out that the relational trust that you place in God is really important. All right, that's it.